We're going to jump into the Word. And i got to tell you uh, that I've been pretty excited about today for some time because uh, we're in this series called Game Changers where we're taking on a different person in the Old Testament who God used in game-changing ways each week and trying to learn, let the Scriptures teach us about these people and take something home with us to apply in our lives. And uh, we talked about the Judge Deborah and last week we talked about the Prophet Samuel and I've been looking forward to today. Because today uh, we're going to talk about uh, a game changer uh, that's that's probably the largest, the biggest impact of any game changer we're going to talk about in this series. And just happens to be my favorite person uh, in the Old Testament. And so we're going to talk today about King David. Everybody say King David. David. You heard of King David before? Everybody? Okay. Nobody raised their hand, so I guess nobody. Okay, so we're going to be starting from zero today. Just kidding. Uh, but King David is who we're talking about today, and it's, it's going to be fun uh, to do that. And so if you have your Bible, you can grab it and head over to 2 Samuel uh, and 1 Chronicles. Those are the scriptures we'll get to eventually, 2 Samuel and 1 uh, Chronicles. Um, and so let me just kind of... Uh, Fill in the gap between Samuel and David. Not much of a gap. We're going to fast forward, but just a few years because the prophet Samuel is actually uh, the one who anointed uh, David king of Israel, right? And so we talked about Samuel last week, and uh, this is just a few years ahead of what we're going to talk about today. Samuel actually uh, actually anointed the, another king, the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, right? King Saul. Then he anointed David king of Israel as well. And so what's happened here is that uh, the people of Israel have come to the prophet, uh, the prophet Samuel and said, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations around us. And Samuel goes, no, you don't need a king because you already have a king. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. And he's going to get ticked off if you have a different king, right? And so maybe you shouldn't do this. And so he pleads with the people, no, no, no. They persist. And God says, Samuel, why don't you go ahead and give him a king and we'll let this play out. And so he does that he anoints Saul, king of Israel, and uh, Saul is the first king, and he does pretty well in the beginning. Uh, Saul is uh, following after the Lord. He even prophesies for a little bit. The spirit of the Lord comes uh, upon him. Uh, In the beginning, he's humble. He's reluctant to take uh, the kingship, and, and all this is happening, but then it's like This slippery slope happens with Saul, and he just makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, disobeying uh, the word of the Lord uh, very clearly and uh, and openly. And so he does this, and and the thing about Saul is that he just never really turns. He never really repents. He never really says, man, I'm messing up. I need to make a change. He doesn't do that. And so finally, the Lord takes away the, the kingdom from Saul. He rejects Saul as king. And he says, I'm going to look for somebody who, who seeks to know me with their full heart, who obeys me at all times and my commands at all times. I'm looking for somebody who has a heart like mine, God says. So he sends Samuel to, to anoint uh, the king of Israel from uh, Jesse's sons. And there's eight of them. And Samuel, if you remember the story, he's like, oh, this one, the oldest one. Yeah, he looks strong, right? And God's like, nope. He's like, oh, it must be the second oldest one. He looks strong too. Like, and he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, gets to the seventh. The eighth son is not there. Samuel goes, where's the eighth son? He's out in a pasture somewhere, right? 
He's shepherding the sheep. Scholars say that he's about 10 uh, to 15 years old. That range, he's not there because he couldn't possibly be the next king of Israel. But it's David, and he comes, and, and Samuel anoints him king of Israel on that day when he's 10 to 15 years old. And it um, ticks Saul off, right? Because Saul is still king at this time. Then another thing happens, the most famous story about David, right? He goes out and he kills a big, tall giant named Goliath, right? And so he kills Goliath and, and Israel loves David because he kills Goliath. And they, he becomes famous and there's songs written about David and songs that compare David to Saul. And Saul's not getting the best light out of this thing, okay? He's not getting what he wants. And so he gets angry and it starts this whole cycle in David's life of Saul trying to kill David, the Lord saving him, Saul trying to kill him again, the Lord saving him. David is, is, is sent out of Israel to wander. He's, he's basically homeless for years and years and years. He wanders with uh, this band of men called the, his mighty men uh, that are with him. And it's just dark times, dark years uh, for King David. But eventually Saul dies at the very end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31. And 2 Samuel is the story of David's reign as king. And overall, David is a huge success as king. He ushers in this era uh, where Israel is like the top dog in the region. They defeat all of their enemies. They become this superpower. All this great stuff happens uh, during David's reign. And God has this great love for David, and he pours his favor on him time and time again. I mean, it's hard for me to overstate the impact that David had on the biblical narrative, on your life as a Christ follower, on the nation of Israel. It's hard to overstate that. David had this huge impact. Let, let me kind of say it in this way. More than, more than Michael Jordan on basketball. More than that. More than Joe Montana on football. Some of you get Joe Montana, some of you don't. That's all right. More than the forward pass on football. Did you guys know there wasn't a forward pass in football? More than the forward pass on football. Like it's, it's a big impact. Just think about this. David is mentioned in the Bible more than any other name other than Jesus. It's Jesus, then it's David. David is mentioned 1,100, over 1,100 times in the Bible. David wrote 75 psalms that ended up in our holy scriptures. David has this incredible impact. God told David that his kingdom would never end, that a Messiah would come out of his line and reign forever. Jesus was that Messiah. Jesus was that Messiah. And there's a lot we could talk about with David. We could talk about his courage, his perseverance, he absolutely had those characteristics in spades. We could talk about his reckless, radical devotion to God. Like, even as a king, he wasn't too good or high and mighty to dress like a commoner and to worship the Lord, to dance before the Lord. And he said, I would do even more than this for my God. He was, he was real. He was radically devoted to God. We could talk about David's extreme obedience and his dependence on God. God called him a man after my own heart, a man after God's own heart. 
We can talk about a lot of things in David. But I want to talk to you about something else. You see, David's my favorite person in the, in the Old Testament. Not because he, of his courage or faithfulness, his radical devotion to God. Not even because of his like, manliness in war. Like if you're a guy and you're reading David's, like, you're like, yeah, all right. David, I want to be like David, all right. He goes out and he just conquers. and he, Just the Lord is with him. He's this manly dude uh, in a lot of ways in the scriptures. Not even that is why he's my favorite uh, person in the Old Testament. He's my favorite because he was completely... And utterly jacked up. Like you and like me. He was jacked up. Turn to your neighbor and say, David was jacked up like you are. Just say that. How did it go? Did your seat neighbor appreciate that? Probably not. But it's true. It's true. David made some huge mistakes. Huge mistakes. And here's... Here's the truth about David. That I, here's the truth about this whole thing today with this game changer that I don't want you to miss. I think it'll change your life if you'll really grab onto it. If God can use King David, he can absolutely use you. If God can use King David, he can absolutely use you because David cross, crosses some serious lines, some lines that I'm pretty sure you haven't crossed. Some sins that you and I would usually say, I don't know if you can come back from that. He does some things that are just vile. And yet God forgave him and still used him. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know what dark sin you've got in your past. But I know it hasn't disqualified you from being used by God as a game changer for your family, your marriage, your kids. Your workplace, your community, your neighbors, your church. That's what the Bible teaches us in David. That's what we see. But here's the thing. Other people in the Bible mess up big time. Sometimes not anywhere close to as bad as David messed up. And God doesn't use them. He doesn't bless them. He doesn't pour favor on them. They don't move past their mistakes and their sins. They don't change the game for their nation or their people or their family or whatever else. They don't do it. They don't get past it. King Saul, David's predecessor, is a good example of that. King Saul messes up and, and makes some mistakes, and God just rejects. He rips the kingdom of Israel out of Saul's hand and gives him to a son of Jesse, David. So what's the difference? What did David have that Saul and so many other people in the scriptures don't have, didn't have? What, what was different? Let's, let's look at it. I want to show you two times where David messed up big time. The first one I think you'll probably recognize. The second one maybe not. And we're going to zero in on this one thing that made him different. But we're also, I'm also going to throw out some truths that we can learn along the way. And so you can take notes and make sure you kind of consider those later with your life group um, this week. So the first one is the one that everybody talks about when it comes to David and his mistakes. It's his most known shortcoming. It's his affair with a woman named Bathsheba. Look at 2 Samuel, starting in verse, or in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says this In the spring of the year, 
the time when kings go out to battle. So it's like a season, like football season. It's like it's time to go out to battle. Let's do this, right? So it's spring of the year, the time that kings go out to battle. Off season's done. We're going after it. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So right off the bat, we've got a problem. David should be leading his men into battle, or at least at the battlefield as they fight their enemies. Instead, he's at home in bed. He's being lazy. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, so the saying goes, right? Idle idle hands. Some of our greatest battles... Come not when we're out fighting the enemy, but when we're avoiding responsibility and being lazy. Idle hands. Idle hands. That's that's the backdrop here. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, So he stays home from the battle, he gets bored, and when temptation comes, he doesn't flee. In fact, he welcomes it. He gets Bathsheba to come to his house, and he sleeps with her. Now she's pregnant, and that's a problem because her husband Uriah is out fighting David's battles. He's out giving of his life to conquer or to protect the land of Israel, and so... There's no hiding this infidelity anymore, right? There's no hiding what's happened. And so what's he going to do? What's David going to do? It's going to come out that he's had this affair. So what is he going to do? Let me just kind of summarize it for time's sake. King David, he comes up with this idea to get word to Uriah to come home and take a break from the battle. And his logic is sound. He hasn't been home in a while. He figures Uriah probably misses his wife. I'm going to let him come home. He'll have some fun with his wife. Then in a few weeks, when she says she's pregnant, he won't be alarmed. Does it make sense so far? Pretty good plan, right? So Uriah comes back. The problem is that Uriah is a man of honor. He won't do it. He won't go into his house while and rest and have fun with his wife while his brothers are dying on a battlefield. He just won't do it. And so David tries to convince him. He sleeps on the porch. He won't go in. David gets him drunk. He still won't go in. He's this man of honor. It just won't work for David. And so cover-up plan number one fails, right? You see, David, David was believing this lie that many of you believe. That if there's no harm, then what? There's no foul. If I can just make this sin about me and not everybody else, if I can just hide it well enough, if I can just cover it up, if Uriah comes back and he thinks this kid is his, no harm, no foul. Uh, As long as it's just me, I don't have to worry about it. And listen, 
Don't act like you're somehow better than King David this morning. You've been in the same situation. You've had that secret sin. All of a sudden, it's, it's not going to be secret very much longer, right? You're going to be found out, and you can see it coming, so you start telling lies. You lie, and you lie, and you lie, and you spin web after web after web, and you cover up, and you cover up, and you scheme. And after each one fails, and the webs you spin become more and more complicated, you just keep trying because you think, if I can just get around the consequence of sin, if I can just cover it up, even though all these lies are taking place, it'll all be worth it if nobody finds out about the big sin. I did. And so I'm, I'm just going to work my hardest to cover this thing up. No harm, no foul. But the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, that your sin will find you out. Not your sin might find you out. Not your sin sometimes if it's big enough, if it hurts other people and not just you, you it'll find you out. It says your sin will find you out. It's just a matter of time. But when we're in the middle of the web spinning and the covering up, we don't believe that, right? We think if we can get around the consequences, it'll be fine. That's where David's at. Because after Uriah doesn't play his part like David wants, his second cover-up plan is even more sinister. He sends a note to Joab, the general of his army, and he says, hey, let Uriah go to the front of the battle and and then just kind of pull back when things get crazy. He basically says, make sure Uriah dies on the battlefield. And listen, Uriah wasn't just some soldier. Uriah was one of David's mighty men I mentioned earlier. He knows David. David knows him. He was with him when Saul was chasing him in his darkest days. I mean, this guy, he's not just some soldier. And so now David... What's gone from kind of laziness has led to looking. He's going, if I look, it's not going to hurt. If I look at this woman, it's not going to hurt anyone. No harm, no foul. Laziness to looking. And then looking led to a desire that he couldn't shake without acting on it. Laziness looking, then adultery. As long as I cover it up, it'll be okay, right? As long as I cover it up, it'll be fine. I just have to cover it up. No harm, no foul. It's just my sin. It won't affect anyone else. So he began to lie. And when his lying and scheming didn't work, he turned to murder. Laziness, to looking, to adultery, to lying, to murder. Look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead... She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What? I mean, this dude cheats on his wife, kills Uriah, lies, schemes, covers it up. And then he just gets the wife? He just, like, God just lets him have Bathsheba? I mean, what is going on? How could God bless this guy so much, right? I mean, how could God stay with him? How could he be remembered, David, as this great king? I mean, what is going on here? This guy's a scoundrel. How could he possibly be favored of God? Look at the next verse, 2 Samuel 12, 1. And the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. 
He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. And David said, oh, it's story time. Okay. Just kidding. That's not in the scriptures. You guys ready for story time though? Verse 2. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. Then David, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Uh Uh-oh, right? This is over a year after David had Uriah killed. Your sin will find you out. Always. You might as well get ahead of it. It doesn't matter how many lies you tell or webs you spin, your sin will find you out eventually. For David, it was through a prophet named Nathan. He confronts King David about his sin, calls him out. Let me just stop here for a second and say this. If King David needed someone to hold him accountable and confront him about his sin, So do you. Some of us are so proud, we think we don't need accountability. We we don't need the spiritual authorities placed in our lives, like Nathan to David, to hold us accountable, rebuke us when we need it, and help us out of the messes we all create. What hubris! What pride! What arrogance! And how heartbreaking to see someone live life thinking they don't need help, building their own little kingdom based on being good people or being good enough, only to find that their goodness burns in the fire at the last day. If David needed it, you and I need it. Just a thought. Let's look at how David responds in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And you go, yeah, of course he's going to own up to it now, right? Like Nathan came and confronted him out of nowhere. Like, of course he's going to own up to it now. But don't forget, David is, David is the most powerful man in Israel at this moment. 
He could have had Nathan thrown in prison. He could have had Nathan killed. He could have denied, 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 tossed him out. He could have gone a different way. He could have deceived, continued to have his, his story of deception going and going and going. Could have done all of this, but instead he chose to own up to it. And it was real. It was real. I know it was real for David because we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of the psalms that David wrote that ended up in the scriptures that you and I deem holy. Look at Psalm 51. Don't miss the intro in Psalm 51. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's crying out to God, begging him for mercy, begging him for forgiveness. He's saying, I was born this way, God. I was born sinful. I was born making messes. I need your help. I need you to wash me clean. I can't do it. Look at verse 10. I think you'll recognize it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David David messed up big time, didn't he? I mean, he did some vile things. So why, why didn't God reject him like he rejected Saul before him and other men and women who did less evil things? Why did he continue to pour out his favor on David, this scoundrel? Here's the answer. God blessed David because of his game-changing repentance. God blessed David because of his game-changing repentance. That's what did it. That's what set David apart. He repented. He turned He ran to God. He told him the truth. He begged for mercy. But then he didn't just go back to what he was doing, right? He asked God to cleanse him. He knew that he was born in sin with no shot at changing apart from God's power at work in him. He didn't go back to his sin, and he didn't act like he could fix it on his own. He goes, cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, restore me to the joy of your salvation. Not, I'll do better, God. I'll I'll work hard and I'll do better. Not, God, if if you won't let her find out, if if you'll let this stay secret, my affair stay secret, then, then I'll serve you forever. No. Not, if you bless me, I'll never sin against you. No, that's not repentance, and it's a recipe for disaster because none of it is true or possible. 
You can't keep from sin on your own without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Every single one of us is moments from the worst kind of sin. Moments from looking that leads to acting on what we saw. That leads to lying and murder. Moments. Listen, beloved, without the resurrection power of Christ at work in you. You are no better than any sinner that you can think of. You're no better than the the darkest of people, the most evil of mankind. You got no shot without the resurrection power of God at work in you, at changing, living for God, being anything but a sinful mess you were born as. David goes, I'm a sinful mess and I can't fix it. God, please cleanse me. Please, God, rip this heart of sin out from me and create in me a new heart. Create in me a new heart, oh God. Repentance. This was a pretty intense ordeal for David, right? I mean, pretty intense, like, lust, adultery, deception, murder, and then God sends this prophet out of nowhere, tells him this story, and just totally rebukes him and confronts him by the power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know that it had happened, but God told Nathan that it had happened. And in the end, the child conceived in adultery dies. It was a tough experience for King David. But the good thing about tough experiences is that they teach us, and we never make that mistake again, right? The answer is no. The answer is no. I mean, isn't it great that all of you who are over 55 have never made the mistakes you made when you were younger than 55? Isn't that great? I mean, anybody in here done that? Anybody in here like, oh, I, I, I arrived. Like, I don't make any mistakes again. Not so much, right? But that's how we think it works, and that's why we're so let down when those older in the faith than us mess up. And it's also why as we get older, in years or in the faith, we sometimes become prideful and we think we have arrived only to be humbled by God in a great and painful way. There's a great verse about this in the book of Job, Job 32.9. It'll be on the screen. It says this. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. The message paraphrases that verse this way. The experts have no corner on wisdom. Getting old doesn't guarantee good sense. David, listen, David was born sinful, and he died sinful. Just like you and me. Listen, beloved, maturity in Christ doesn't mean you sin less. It just means you repent more. Maturity in Christ, it doesn't mean you sin less. It just means you repent more. You're not stronger on your own. You're you're just more aware of your weakness and your need to depend on Christ for every single thing. Experience maturity in Christ. It shouldn't make you stronger. It should make Christ stronger in you. Are you tracking with me this morning? David is a good example of this. It's not like he's perfect after this whole Bathsheba incident. 
Fast forward to the end of 2 Samuel and close to the end of David's life. He was about 47 years old when the whole Bathsheba thing happened. Now he's close to 70. And he does something that costs a lot of people's lives, tens of thousands of people's lives. Israel has just won a battle at this point and but the scriptures say that God is angry with the people of Israel. We don't know why he's angry, but we know that under the pressure of God's wrath, David does something very, very foolish. He sends to Joab and orders him to number the people. In other words, he says, take a census of my kingdom so I can know how big it has become. Doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Like no big deal. Uh, But God had been very clear to this point that the kings of Israel were not to take a census, were not to number the people, because he knew that if they started numbering things, they'd start to think that they were the ones who created this, and it would lead to pride that would lead to even greater sin. And, And the Old Testament law says that you can number things, but only if they're yours. You can count them, you can add them up, you can count them as yours, but only if they really are yours. And the people of Israel were not David's, they were God's. And so he commits this sin. God is the only one, the Bible says, that can get the, can call for a census of the Israel nation. And so David wants, wants to count the people. He wants to go out and do this sin, and he's confused, and he makes a mistake. And he, just like with Uriah, he calls on Joab to help him do it. This time, though, Joab doesn't just do it. Joab says, David, King David, I don't think we should do this. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we don't do this. Maybe we go a different way. But David pulls rank. He does it anyway. A side lesson here. If you find yourself in a position where no one around you is allowed to give you advice, confront you, or keep you accountable, you're in trouble. Everyone needs accountability in their lives. David has risen to a point at this time when he's 70 years old that he cannot be questioned or stopped. And it costs tens of thousands of lives. All I've been saying to this point as I'm telling you this story is in 2 Samuel 24. But I want to show you something from the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21, it'll be on the screen, starting in verse 8. All this has happened, and it says, And David said to God, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done this thing. But now, please take away my iniquity, the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So again, we see King David repent and ask for mercy. He doesn't persist in his stubbornness. He goes, I've been foolish. What happens next is, that God gives King David three choices of how God's punishment will come about. He says you can either have three years of famine, no food, no crops, three years of famine, or you can have three months of your enemies uh, defeating you in battle, or you can have three days of the wrath of the Lord in the form of a plague. You can have one. It's kind of a weird like twist on the whole game show, door one, door two, door three thing, right? Like door one, three years of famine. Door two, three months of your enemies defeating you. And door three is the the hand of the Lord against you in the form of a plague. This is his choice. The nation will pay a price for his sin. He gets to choose how. Look at verse 13. 
Then David said to Gad the prophet, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But don't let me fall into the hand of man. And so here's kind of what I want you to hear from this. Even, Even when the result will be a plague, David chooses the Lord over everything else. He doesn't think, well, we got a lot of grain saved up. So I think we can probably handle three years of famine. He doesn't think, oh, my enemies defeated me. I whooped up on Goliath. I've whooped up on all these nations. Bring them. Let's see what the Lord, like I'll probably beat them. Like I can handle that. He doesn't do that. He has sinned and he's repenting. There's no room for pride. He says, if I get to choose, I choose to be at the mercy of God's hands. And so this plague comes on the people and death is everywhere. 70,000 people die. 70,000 men of Israel die, it says in verse 14. And all this time, death is everywhere, and all this time, King David and the elders of Israel have clothed themselves in sackcloth and are bowing before the Lord, begging for him to relent, begging for him to give grace and to give mercy. And then look at verse 15. 2 Chronicles 21, verse 15. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Stay your hand. Jesus said this twice at the beginning of Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Listen. The secret to David's success was not that he always made the right decisions. Far from it, right? It was that when he didn't, he always repented. He wasn't perfect by any means. What made him different is that he knew that. And instead of wallowing in guilt and shame of sin or or doubling down on his pride, acting like he doesn't need help with his sin, or his sin isn't a big deal. He repented. He confessed openly. He asked God for help. He leaned on the Holy Spirit's power to turn, to change direction. That's what repentance is. Listen, every single person on the planet has only two choices in this matter. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. You will repent or you will perish. This idea is all over the Bible. Repentance is is when you're in a boat going on a river headed towards a waterfall. You're going fast and you don't see the waterfall. You don't know you're going to die. Repentance is when somebody is on the edge of the, the bank who's screaming at you going, stop! Stop going! 
There's a waterfall. You're going to die. Stop. A person, a prophet, a pastor, a friend, or the voice of the Holy Spirit directly speaking to your heart and your mind saying, Stop. There's danger ahead. There's a waterfall. Don't go. Repentance is when all that happens. You're headed towards the waterfall and you turn the boat around. That's what repentance is. You listen and you respond. Listen, it's not going to help you if you're in the boat and you go, I'm sorry, I'm going towards the waterfall. It's not going to help you if you're in the boat and you go, God, I'm in, a wa- I'm in a boat headed for a waterfall. I'm so sorry. And you do nothing. It's not going to help you if you do that. You have to turn. But listen, the current of sin, it's strong, isn't it? It's so strong. You see, stage one in this whole thing is that you just blinders on, don't know what's going on, don't listen to all the signs, and you head to the waterfall and you die. Stage two is you hear and you realize that you're in sin and you're headed towards a waterfall, but you don't do anything about it. You just go, I'm sorry, and then you die. That's stage two. Stage three is when you start to turn the boat. But the current is so strong. And you try your hardest, and it doesn't matter if you're a boat guy, a sailor, like a guy who knows what he's doing on a boat, doesn't matter. The the current is too strong for you. Listen, beloved, the current of sin is too strong for you. You can paddle and paddle and paddle, and you can maybe start to turn the boat, and you can maybe start to head towards the side, but you will tire out, and the boat will correct itself going forward towards the waterfall, and you will die, just like the person who doesn't know they're headed to a waterfall. You know what you need? You need a motor. Right? I mean, you need a motor. You can't paddle this thing back. You need, you need a motor. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to turn this boat around for you. Don't think if you're experienced or mature or strong or good, you'll somehow turn the boat. You will tire out. You need a motor. That's stage four. You see, even if you realize your sin and you try to turn things around, you will fail unless you depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to turn that boat around. You cannot do this on your own. Repentance is turning from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what David did. That's what made him Such a game changer. Let me boil it down this way. Do you want to be a game changer for your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your neighborhood, your community, your church? I said earlier that if God can use David, he can use you too. That's true. If God can use David, he can absolutely use you if you repent. 
Maybe you need to repent. Not just once when you give your life to Christ, but throughout your life, every day, ongoing repentance. Hear hear the warning today. I love you enough to warn you. Hear the warning. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 is one to put on your wall or your mirror or somewhere you see it or to memorize it and say it every day. It says this, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God's requirement is not perfection. It's repentance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that always cuts to the quick. Every Sunday, every day when we open your scriptures, God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your truth that finds its target every time. I pray, Jesus, that this truth about repentance, God, that the seeds of this truth would go deep into our hearts and find good soil and produce ongoing repentance. For those in this room who have never repented before, have never asked for the Holy Spirit to help them turn this boat around, have never given their lives over to you, Jesus. For those who are in here who have never done that, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that you would transform their heart, that they would somehow get to Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, oh God, I was born in sin, create in me a new heart, that they would that they would cry out to you, Jesus, in this moment, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform their heart of sin into your heart, into a heart overflowing with your righteousness, with your grace, with your love. God, it's supernatural. We're asking for a miracle in the hearts of those who have yet to repent. I pray in Jesus' name. God, that as they realize they're headed to a waterfall, that they would repent not to get away from the waterfall, but that your kindness and providing a way through your son, Jesus Christ, your love for them, that that would cause them to repent, to turn, to run after you. Like King David, God, let us be a people who repent. Those in here who are Christians, who have repented, who have given their lives over to you, who who have turned the boat, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave here thinking that they're good to go, but just like King David, that throughout their life, they would have this hallmark of repentance. They'll mess up and they'll repent, and they'll mess up and they'll repent, and they'll just always run back to you and ask for your forgiveness. And right now, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal in our hearts in our minds, where it is in our lives that we need to repent. What sin are we involved in? What priority do we have out of whack, God? What secret sin have we been spinning webs and telling lies to cover up, Lord? Our sin will find us out. We know that. Let us repent before it does. God, it's a big thing we ask today, but we ask it because you're a big God. We trust you. Let As I always pray, let my words this week, whatever is of me, fall to the wayside and whatever is from your Holy Spirit, would it haunt us this week? Would it not easily leave our hearts and our minds? In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Why don't you stand with me? But here's my prayer for us today. May we welcome the warning from the Holy Spirit this morning. May we realize that each of us is that man headed for a waterfall in some area in our lives. And may we let go of pride enough and trust 
God enough to repent and repent and repent and repent. That's David. Next week is the prophet Elijah, which will be exciting. Read 1 Kings 17 through 19 to get ready. Make sure you get to a life group this week and talk today's message over. And like always, I encourage you, just like today you were helped to take your next step towards God, don't let it stop with you. Go home and help someone else take their next step towards God. Open the scriptures up to 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and talk about David and talk about repentance. Look at Psalm 51 with your neighbor and be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. God bless you. If you're not in a life group, stop at the Connections uh, Center on the way out and, and get involved in a life group so you can talk this over this week. Let's sing together.